guy Asaph, he wasn't just your regular kind of new believer Christian. This this is a pretty solid, secure, mature Christian. Um, I mean, you don't get to be picked by the king to lead the choir and all the worship unless you're committed and you're dedicated and your heart is devoted to the Lord. And so I think that's important when we go through and look at this Psalm 73 here. And overall, Asaph is credited with writing 12 Psalms, these 11 here, and then he also wrote uh, Psalm 50. And so in this Psalm here, 73, which starts out the book three of the Psalms there, Asaph asks the question, as you'll see, why do the wicked seem to prosper while we as Christians who follow and obey the Lord, have difficulties in our struggling, right? And don't we even today kind of struggle with that difficulty or that thought? Why am I who am living righteously or trying to live righteously and holy when you look at others who are, you know are wicked and don't follow the Lord, seem to prosper and are rich? All you have to do is open up the newspapers, read the news, and see that it's filled with the exploits and deeds of the wicked, how they seem to, how the millionaires seem to make more and more money and more prosperous, and how they just seem to get more and more richer and richer, more famous, more greater, more famous name. It just keeps like there's no end in sight, but yet here we are trying to obey God, and we don't see all these things happening for us, right? Uh, and I, was, and I was doing this just out of curiosity, and you guys might find this interesting there. I, I said, you know what, this includes pastors and teachers as well, too. There are good and righteous pastors, and there are false and unrighteous and even wicked pastors. And so just out of curiosity, I looked at the top ten richest pastors in the world. And I think you'll be happy to know that none of the elders at Calvary made that list. So just, just, just to let you know. But it was interesting. This was compiled by Forbes magazine, so it's pretty solid, pretty solid <coughs> information, I think. And that two of the two of the top ten richest pastors of the world live here in Dallas Fort Worth. Any, anybody have any questions? You would know all their names if I told you. Anybody any guesses? T.G. Jakes. Um, he was on the list, but he is not in Dallas Fort Worth. T.D. Jakes, and there's one other one, Kenneth Copeland. So what they said was, just out of curiosity, if you're interested, Copeland was worth roughly around $25 million, and T.D. Jakes was $147 million. And he was second on the list. Number one was $150 million. And uh, another interesting fact, too, was that out of the top ten richest pastors, four of them, including the richest one, are from Nigeria. So if you're familiar with Nigeria at all, they are very well known for the health and wealth and the prosperity gospel, very much so. If you ever want to uh, get some interesting stories, uh, look up uh, Nigeria pastors and health and wealth gospel, and you'll be amazed at what goes on over there. Um, <clears throat> so getting back to our psalm then... Um, <clears throat> So uh, why do the question in the psalm here that we see is, 
Why do wicked people prosper and Christians seem to struggle in this world? Right? And in, in, in answering this question, I think you're also going to see the overall theme in addressing this question is Asaph is going to show you in answering this question how you can have victory over the flesh by taking your eyes off the world and putting them on God. And you're going to see this theme play out for itself, I think, in this psalm here to be an encouragement for all of you. So with that, let's go turn to Psalm uh, 73, if you haven't already. And I'd like to read the the whole psalm. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So here I propose that there are eight points in this psalm here in which Asaph finds the answer to the question, why do the wicked prosper and we struggle? But then it also illustrates the process of us gaining victory over the flesh and turning back to God. And so at our first point we have, I should have number one there, hopefully a blank space, Asaph's acknowledgement is the first one in verses one through three. So in verse 1, he starts out, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Truly, he starts, listen, here's a fact. God is good to Israel and to those who are committed to him. 
And that, as we said, ASAP, mature, strong believer, that he knows God is the God of Israel, and that he knows that he is good and good to those who believe in him. Theologically, he's sound here, so he knows the truth and he understands. But yet, um, we're going to see, even though he knows all this, he is struggling. That even though he understands that God is good to Israel in redeeming them out of Egypt, taking them into covenant with himself, giving them his laws and his ordinances, he still has this one question and this one problem that he struggles with. And in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. We see that this is a real spiritual battle for Asaph, that his feet had almost stumbled, that he's worried about these things. But yet there's also a hint there. He says, I almost stumbled. My feet had almost slipped. So we see that there's a hope that, he fight, that there's a resolution to his question and his problem. And so when his feet almost stumbled then is when men or women doubt the righteousness of God, then their own integrity begins to waver. When our feet stumble, then our steps begin to falter, and a person begins to get off God's path as they waver in their trust of the goodness and the truth of God. And so Asaph is struggling because he believes God is good, but because of what he has seen, he has doubts in God, as he says in verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His eyes were off God and focused on the prosperity of the wicked, of all the good things that he was seeing come to them. And so here I think there's even a warning here for all of us, that even the strongest of believers, the strongest of any of us here, can run across or experience circumstances or issues that may cause us may cause you to question or struggle in their faith. As he said, Asaph here, he's not no brand new, uninformed, still learning Christian. I think he's pretty set and sound in his doctrine and theology, but yet he still runs across this question or this issue that causes him to kind of question or struggle in his faith. And in this There's also an admission of sin here in Asaph's remarks that he was envious. That he, to envy the wicked because they prosper is to make more account of the good things of this life than of God's favor. To prefer physical good to moral. It is also to doubt that God governs the universe by the strict rule of justice. And aren't we sometimes the same way? And there's doubt Does God really know what he's doing? Doesn't he understand this is going on? And we do that, then doubt comes in. And Psalm 37.1 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. There's a warning even there for us. So here's the problem that's laid before God then. Why do the wicked prosper? And now here in this next section, uh, number two, we're going to see... uh, the apparent rewards of the wicked. The apparent rewards of the wicked. Now here Asaph is going to go through, so he must have given some thought to this, because he's going to list all these things. So he has been thinking about these things, and all these things 
that apparently all these good things that are coming to the wicked that he is not enjoying. Under two, you should have letter A. No, they have no concern about death in verse four. No concern about death. Verse four, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. These people live in no fear of worry or death. They eat, drink, and, and are merry. They have no thoughts about death. It seems that they retain their strength and live healthy and vibrant lives with no sickness or illness. They may even be defined against death if, as if death cannot harm them. Death is not even thought of as a possibility for them. This is what Asaph sees in, in their lives and how they act and how they respond. He sees next in verse 5 that apparently there is no trouble, that these people have no trouble. And these, the wicked, I'm going to start calling them as the prosperous wicked, seem to have little struggles or sorrows. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They do not worry about their next meal or paying bills. They seem to be immune from any struggling or suffering. They appear to enjoy more than the others all the luxuries, comforts, and excesses of this life. And Charles Spurgeon says this, If earthly good were of much value, the Lord would, get, would not give so large a measure of it to those who have the least of his love. And next you see in uh, verses 6 through 9, letter C, pride. You'll see their pride that they have. So your question would be, well, how is pride in a, an award or a reward for people? But if you're a prideful person and have no concern about God and you don't see pride as a sin, you would be eager then to boast about all these great things that you've done or you have accomplished or the abilities and boasting and all the great things and how great you are. So it would be kind of a apparent reward for the wicked. And so in verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. By the manner in which they carry their head, literally physically, we can see how prideful people walk, right? They have that certain air, body, physical posture, and this is, this is what it's kind of referring to, that just by the way they carry their head or their neck, it shows their pride. They believe they are the people favored by heaven because of their success and riches. They believe it was by their skills, talents, and abilities that they earned all that they have. And because of this pride then, violence covers them like a garment. Pride and self-conceit naturally lead one uh, to violence, which becomes so habitual to them that it seems like their ordinary apparel. It's just a way of life for them to live in violence. Is a part of a lifestyle. Why? Because they get whatever they want. Because they believe that no one will or can stop them. Psalm 58, 2. No, in your hearts you devise wrong, and your hands deal out violence on earth. But this is just the regular way for them to do business. They consider themselves untouchable. Verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. Their eyes swell out because of their indulgent lifestyle. That 
makes them fat. It's in the Bible there. Um, you know, they eat the best. For us, maybe for us regular folk, we eat at McDonald's, right? They go to Texas Day Brazil and indulge themselves with all their money, right? Or maybe if we got a little money in our pocket, we go to Chick-fil-A, right? Well, they go and indulge themselves at the Cheesecake Factory. So they're just indulgent. Their hearts have more than they could ever want or need, yet their heart overflows. They want more. They are gluttonous and just continue to seek after more and more and more. They're just never satisfied. Ezekiel 16.49 Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They think only of themselves. How can I get more and more for myself? And they have no concern for others. In verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice, and loftily they threaten oppression. That they scoff or mock, another, maybe your Bible says that they're even they're corrupt. They speak malice or evil to oppress people. They do not care who they hurt or slander by words. They demean people for their own selfish goals, and they use whatever vicious words they can to advance their agenda and to persecute or abuse people. They only care for themselves. In verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Now here, this is kind of interesting verse here, the first part of verse 9, where it says they set their mouths against the heaven. There's two kind of views here as I was going through this. One of them thinks that, uh, one view says that they're speaking, speaking as if they are talking down from the heavens, that is, if they are like gods themselves and they're speaking down to the people, like, this is who I am, I'm mighty and powerful. Or the other view is that, uh, that they're speaking bad about God in general. Um, but uh, kind of looking at it and looking at the flow of the psalm here, I think the first view is kind of what it goes back to, is that they are proud and arrogant and doing whatever pleases them, that no one seems to, to stop them. That here is uh, Asaph lists all the apparent rewards. There's really nothing about or no concern about God. That they're just more concerned about themselves and want to brag and talk about themselves. So I think because of that pride and arrogance then, that they are talking down to the people, listen to me, look all the great things I've done, that I'm like a God and nothing can stop me or, or prevent me from doing that. And I think in reading this, what they're saying is that they are more concerned about flaunting themselves before men than taunting God, that they see themselves as their own authority, so they see themselves as God's commanding people what to do, and therefore they strut throughout the whole earth and telling people who they are and what they have done and what they're getting ready to do. And so that is pride there in 6 through 9. And then D, they are admired in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And so this is actually a kind of a unique verse in the Hebrew language, what is the probable reading was, if any of us could speak Hebrew or read Hebrew, it would say, it actually says, the waters of a full cup are drained by them. 
So you can see how it matches up perfectly with verse 10 here, right? Um, so the kind of the meaning, roughly kind of what this means is that the admirers, the admirers drink in all the wicked ways of those prosperous wicked, that they want to imitate these people and admire them for their, for their wicked ways. That with all these apparent good things that these people or admirers see from these, these prosperous wicked, um, they will draw others onto them and others will come alongside them, admire and follow them. So if you wanted to use kind of a modern day term or a language that we might understand, that these prospered wicked people, they would have their own posse that kind of follows them around and admires and builds them up and tries to emulate and be like them. In Job 15, 16, <clears throat> says, How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. And then Romans 1.32 here, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but then give approval to those who practice them. So not only do they approve, they also want to be like them. And then verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And so now I think this is where we get where the, the wicked here that prosper now are kind of speaking against God. That they think that there will be no consequences. They mistakenly believe that God will not see, or rather hope that God will not see all their evil, evil deeds. So in other words, biblically speaking, we would say that they are fools. Uh, if you want to turn back into a few pages back to Psalm 10, there is uh, verses 4, Psalm 10, verse 4. It says, In the pride of his face, that is God, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. In verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. In verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? That these people have no fear of judgment or accountability before God. And lastly, the last apparent reward that Asaph thinks they have in verse 12 is letter E, that they will prosper more. They prosper more. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Behold, he says, look, after all this list from ASAP, here is the sum total of the apparent rewards of all that we see. The wicked live a life of luxury, comfort, and ease. And then to make matters worse, on top of all that, they continue to pile up more gold and more silver and more riches and more treasure. That there is no end to their prosperity. That the rich keep getting richer and that everything they touch turns to gold. That there seems to be, that they seem to be even to ASAP. That in his thinking that they just, there's no kind of penalty or discipline or anything upon them. And so then after this list here, after all this apparent list of all these apparent rewards that Asaph listed and that's thought about, that now he kind of makes his complaint um, in verses 13 through 16. So number three would be Asaph's complaints. 
in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now this is where he starts getting into his real gripes and complaints and even, I say, whining a little bit here. You know, oh God, here I am. I've lived a righteous and a holy life. I've lived in repentance. I have obeyed all your commands. Look at all these people, rich, all their gold and silver. Where's my gold and silver? Why, where am I going to get my riches and treasures? Where are my rewards? Why am I struggling here? And the unrighteous are prospering and living in this luxury and comfort. And then verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So this is something that he is thinking about from the time he gets up in the morning to the time he goes to bed and closes his eyes. That's all he seems to think about is why are these people prospering? Why am I struggling? That you get even a sense that there's a little bit of bitterness in here of I'm doing all these things and trying to be righteous before you. And that, but yet I seem like I'm brought down. I'm depressed thinking of all their success and all their, and all my struggles. It just doesn't seem fair. I'm godly and all these people are ungodly and yet they get all this and I apparently seem to get nothing. That we see that his mind is preoccupied with all these worldly treasures and other things that they're doing. He's more concerned about with what others get than what he has. And don't we all get carried away with that from time to time there? when we see what others are getting and what we don't have. And we kind of struggle and a little bitterness can set in. Verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And so he said then that Asaph is a mature, strong believer, trusts in the Lord. And here is a lesson for us in this verse from Asaph that he hasn't, Completely lost everything there. So his mind is preoccupied. He's thinking of all these things yet, but he still has some wisdom here. That even though he has all these doubts and grumbling and complaints about the pursuit of a holy life and righteous living compared to the riches of the wicked, yet Asaph has a discretion to keep it to himself. That this means here that he's not going to share these complaints with other believers that discourage them, to give them doubt that he has the spiritual maturity to just keep his mouth shut. And so it's one thing for us then to have confusing thoughts or doubts, but it's another more serious matter to share with them in such a way then as to dishearten fellow believers. Proverbs 30, 32. This is something I think we should all think of. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you have been devising evil, Put your hand on your mouth. Just, just keep our mouth closed. And that's the Bible. That's not Mike. So, um, And so again, he, Asaph demonstrates some of his spiritual maturity by knowing to just keep his mouth shut and not share these complaints again to dishearten or um, fellow believers. And then verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Here that he truly is. He's truly struggling with. He's puzzled and perplexed. He has questions in his mind. He's wise enough to realize not to share his thoughts, but he is at the point, finally, 
where human wisdom, his human wisdom has failed to understand and grasp the situation, that he finally gives up. And so now he's finally going to get on the right track here. Um, but because he still has turmoil in his heart and his mind about what am I to do? What is the solution to this? Where can I find the understanding and the wisdom that will settle the matter and bring peace to my heart? And there can only be one place or one person that can, that can settle our hearts and we can find peace. And that would be God. Right? And, exact, and we see in verse 17, that is exactly what Asaph has figured out. At verse 17, we can call this Asaph's epiphany. That he says, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Their end. Only when Asaph sought the Lord would he receive his answer. Asaph went to the temple to worship God, and there he found his answer. Psalm 68, 35. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Asaph realizes it was not in this life that counts, but what happens at the end when all are judged for all eternity. The righteous to their rewards and the wicked to their judgment. Ecclesiastes 8.12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. When Asaph went and worshipped the Lord, he went from a worldly, physical mindset to a spiritual, God-focused mindset. His mind went from the earth to heaven, and there is nothing in this world that can compare to the greatness of God. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We also have other examples. Asaph is not the only one. King Hezekiah himself in 2 Kings 19 did the same exact thing. When he received the letter, the distressing letter from Sennacherib, when he was surrounded by all his army, he immediately went into the temple. In 2 Kings 19.14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So here in our doubts and our struggles, Asaph and here also Hezekiah give us examples to follow. And uh, commentator Matthew Henry gives us some good instructions about going to the Lord. He says, Asaph meditated upon the attributes of God and the things revealed, which belong to us and to our children. He consulted the scriptures and the lips of the priests who attended the sanctuary. He prayed to God to make this matter plain to him and help him over this difficulty. And at length, he understood the wretched end of wicked people. And so I think there's some good instructions here for us to come to the Lord, that we can meditate upon God's word, we can search the scriptures, we can seek counsel from mature Christians, elders or other brothers or sisters, and we can pray. If you are not actively engaged in these disciplines, you are a target for the enemy to plant seeds of doubt and envy in your Christian life. The word and prayer should be a Christian's first two responses to struggles and doubts. Struggles and I would say struggles and doubts by themselves not necessarily are sin, but it is how you react to them that make a difference in your Christian life between anxiety and stress or peace and joy. 
And so finally, when Asaph sought and worshipped the Lord, truth visited his heart and mind and cleared his thinking. Now that his thinking is right, he perceives the eventual ruin and destruction of the prosperous wicked and their final and guaranteed rewards. And so now he sees in, in verses 18 through 20 the actual rewards of the wicked. Remember, we looked at the apparent rewards, and that's what they are. They are apparent. But these are now the actual rewards of the wicked when he sees and seeks the Lord. Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. The prosperous wicked are in a dangerous place. They are in a slippery place. And a slippery place is a place where it's hard to maintain your position. We all know what it's like to be in mud and it's slippery. It's hard to stay upright. Matthew Henry says, Their prosperity has no firm ground. It is not built upon God's favor or his promise, and they have not the satisfaction of feeling that it rests on firm ground. Jeremiah 23, 12, Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. And the Bible is filled with examples of the wicked falling into ruin. Jezebel, Oh yeah, thrown, thrown down and devoured by dogs. Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, who was briefly the queen of Judah, she was killed by the sword. And so we see here the fruit didn't fall far from the tree on this one. Right? She lasted only two more chapters than her mother. And then Herod Agrippa, he was eaten by worms. How quickly his destruction came. In verse 19, How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. The wicked are consumed in a moment. Their deaths are sudden and unexpected. And that is exactly what happened in Jezebel, Athaliah, and Herod. Gone in a minute, all their treasures left behind, gone to be no more. Job 25, that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment. In verse 20, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That God will awaken and bring justice. The prosperous wicked are prosperous only in the providence of the Lord. And when God, when he tires and when his patient runs out, the wicked are wiped away and are like dreams that vanish. When a person wakens from sleep and we don't remember those dreams anymore, so are the prosperous wicked. In this case, the world remembers the wicked no more. Psalm 52, 6 and 7. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. And so when Asaph understands the actual end for the wicked, then now we get to Number six, Asaph's confession in verses 21 through 22. When he realizes now the answer to his question there, what actually is going to happen, he confesses. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Asaph confesses and admits the bitterness and frustration that was in his heart. He had come to a hasty conclusion that was wrong. And this grieved him that apparently the wicked were prospering without any consequences for the evil behavior. That at this time his heart was in emotional distress. He was really struggling with this issue. 
Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And he was envious of the wicked, and he was struggling. And the Bible says that when we do that, it's like rot to the bones. But all this bitterness and frustration was only harming Asaph, and he finally realized it. And so just as it only hurts us when we worry that God is not in control, or we're envious of others, or we don't think that he knows what he's doing, and that is sin or distrust in us for the Lord, and it only, it only really harms us. Verse 22, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. And he was brutish, foolish, that even stupid to think these things. Proverbs 30, verse 2, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. And that he even considers himself to be like an animal, that he judged things by what he saw. That's what he means, that he just judged things by what he saw, not thinking that he lived by sight and not by faith. Psalm 32, 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or will not stay near you. At times, the, the Bible can be brutally honest about us and who we are sometimes. But sometimes that is exactly what we need. We need to hear God's word to remind us sometimes. And it's only when we have that sharp prod that we come to the truth to get back on the right path. And so Asaph can is able to confess then because he knows of God's grace and his mercy and his faithfulness to forgive. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so my question then to you, to all of you this morning then, is have you wholly and fully repented in God? And had you been cleansed and washed from all your sins so you can be forgiven and have eternal life? Not just for one sin, but for all your sins. Has all your sins been washed away? by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we know that there's only one way in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That if you have any doubt, any fear for your soul then, run to the Lord Jesus. That it was only Him and Him alone that took your penalty upon the sin and paid that penalty. And that He died and He rose from the dead and that all those who will put their trust and their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. So I encourage you today, let today be your day of salvation to get right with God and have your sins forgiven. <clears throat> Continuing, and we have to hurry here. Number seven, Asaph's realization and repentance in verses 23 through 26. Asaph's realization then and repentance. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. And all, and as I read these verses, all that I come to my mind here as I think of the child who was caught by his parents doing something wrong. They discipline, they spank that child and correct him. And then afterwards, that child is so cooperative and eager to obey and to help and to be a good child. And that just what I picture Asaph, he realizes he was corrected. He was disciplined, and now he's just kind of eager to please God, that he has that same type of mind. He has confessed and is now eager to go about obeying his God and pleasing him now who has so graciously forgiven him. He says, now that I'm wrong, Lord, 
I understand. I'm ready to follow you. And there's this just sweet, sweet picture of God here where he says, you hold my right hand. And we picture God tenderly holding our hand and leading Asaph and leading us along that correct path. That when we confess and repent, God is so eager and so tender to restore us and lead us back into the straight pathways. But it is that unconfessed sin that breaks our fellowship. But it's, as we see here in Asaph, it's that confessed sin that leads to restoration. Psalm 18.35, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Verse 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Asaph finally puts an end to following his own wisdom and devotes himself to following God through his word. Because now Asaph knows that God's way is the right way. Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you. In the way you should go, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And afterward, here, and he says, afterward you will receive me to glory. Afterward, Asaph with confidence declares his future rewards after following God. And Charles Spurgeon says this well, Afterward, what a blessed word. We could cheerfully put up with the present when we foresee the future. And then verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That Asaph now proclaims his complete dedication to God. Henceforth, you are my pursuit, my consuming passion, that I will continue to follow hard after you. He realized that only in God alone is there satisfaction joy, and happiness, that now Asap is willing to to forsake all these earthly things to pursue his glorious God. And that, uh, to help you understand, there's another translation in the second half of verse 25 where it says, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You could also think of this as saying, and having thee, having God, I desire nothing else on earth. And since God is our God, we, should, we, like Asaph, should delight in who God is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. Psalm 63.1, O oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land there is no water. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph confesses that he has already failed once and probably we fail in the future. And just like all of us, we probably have failed once and we're probably going to fail again and again and again. But still, he trusts that God will carry him through to the end. He and all of us should realize that there is nothing more desirable than God. That it is God who is infinitely valuable and worthy. Greater than anything in this world, and that we will be with him forever. And so now we finally come to the conclusion. After all these points, Asaph's acknowledgement, the rewards of the wicked, his complaints, his epiphany, we see the actual rewards of the wicked, we see his confession, realization, and repentance, and finally, point eight, the last, we see Asaph's wise conclusion in the last two verses. In verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, 
you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Asaph, in these last two verses, summarize all that he has concluded through this psalm. And in verse 27, he reflects on the sure destruction of the wicked. Those who choose to forsake God will surely perish through eternal judgment and condemnation in the fires of hell. That Asaph went from envying the wicked to now he pities them when he realizes their horrible fate. It is, and it is God that is going to do this. He, he realizes you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That it will be a righteous judgment from a righteous God to those who are unfaithful. That this Hebrew word um, is, uh, means to commit uh, fornication. Or another translation that says, as in this verse there, to better illustrate there when he talks about being unfaithful, is thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. And that hardly ever in the Old Testament does this word mean to commit sexual immorality. But rather, the term most frequently is used to describe spiritual prostitution and idolatry, where they turn away from God. And in this case, the prosperous wicked have turned from God to the gods of money and power and wealth and pride and themselves, and they have done so to their own eternal destruction. Ezekiel 23:35. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and whoring. <coughs> there. So verse 27 then concludes all that Asaph has learned about the prosperous wicked, that they will end up in hell. And then in the last final verse, he comes to the conclusion about himself and how, and how he is to live in light of all this truth. And really, brothers and sisters, this should also be our conclusion as well to verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. That it is good for all of us to draw near to God and find refuge in Him. And the Bible gives us this, the great promise in James chapter 4, right? Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And it is always good to be near God. There are no disadvantages when we draw near to God. And when you're tired, He gives you rest. When you're weak, He will make you strong. When you've sinned, He will forgive you. When you're unsure, He'll give you wisdom. When you're lonely, He gives you comfort. And so Asaph makes the Lord his refuge, his shelter or safe place from danger. Near to God and under his protection, that is where he is and that's where all Christians need to be. And as it said, as we started out, God is good. So when you remember and draw near to him, remembering God is good, you can tell others about the greatness, security, and salvation there is in trusting God and not gold or anything else in this world. That Asaph's experience here as he goes through this whole psalm then should lead us all to understand and to answer our question too about the prosperous wicked is that the righteous on his worst day 
is far better off than the unrighteous on their best day. So in this whole psalm there, 73 there, God then documents for us the spiritual struggle of Asaph when he's trying to reconcile this question about why do the, prosper, why do the wicked prosper and I seem to struggle? Because he's trying to reconcile what he sees and what God promises in his word. And so hopefully the answer is clear here that the apparent rewards of the prosperous wicked are just temporary and lead to their eternal ruin and destruction. And then in Asaph, as we see in this psalm, as he goes through the process of answering this question then, God then has graciously illustrated this process then of how we today could transition from walking in the flesh to walking in the spirit when we have doubts and struggles. When we put our mind on the world, we need to get it back onto God. And so in this process, we see how it starts with doubts and struggles, which leads to complaints. And then we see how it leads to seeking God and finding and seeking his truth. Then it leads to repentance and a renewed faith, which leads to renewed trust and commitment and worship of God. So at the end then, it becomes clear that God is righteous, true, and faithful, and that those who trust in him, though he may be perplexed and puzzled and don't understand at times all the things in this world, we know, though, that we will have joy unspeakable we all enter the kingdom of God to be in the presence of God forever. Let's pray. Lord, Father, this is just a wonderful psalm again to encourage us, to show us that we can have doubts and struggles, that we don't understand all things, but Lord, Father, you have given us your answer and process that we are to seek and to draw near to you. Father, help us to do that, to help us keep our eyes off all these earthly things that in the end amount to nothing, and at the end, for those who trust in them, leads to ruin and destruction. So, Father, help us. Help us to come to you, to draw near, to worship you, to praise you, to have renewed strength, trust, and faith in you. So as this psalmist said, as Asaph said, that we might tell others about your goodness and graciousness so that they may also partake in that as well, too. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.